today we're going to uh, raise the question, who's the enemy? Um, in our uh, WordWise study, um, we, we studied last week that Ezra uh, went to establish the foundations of the temple in Jerusalem at the command of Cyrus. God had actually pro- uh, prophesied through the life of Isaiah that Cyrus was going to come and he was going to be the one who would send the children of Israel back to Israel to, uh, to establish themselves back in the land after their 70 years of punishment or uh, exile in Babylonia. When it came time for them to move, they moved and Ezra took a, a load of people back to Israel and as soon as they got back to Israel, you would have thought, well, it's easy now, just build the temple, get it, get it started. Well, as soon as he started to do that, we discovered last week that there was uh, opposition immediately from the people who already lived in the land who didn't want the Israelites to come back, who wanted the land for themselves and they didn't, especially didn't want any God-fearing people coming back into the land. And they were quite upset about the fact that there was somebody coming back to do something about it. So they sent a letter to the king, Artaxerxes, and at that time, King Artaxerxes, his son was taken over, had taken over the reign and he had been killed by a Magian uh, guy and he was uh, an imposter in the throne room at that time and for three years that imposter stayed there until it was discovered, one of his wives discovered that it wasn't the guy and uh, they sent in some people and they executed the man. So when the guy was in there, he received the letter from the, the imposter king, received the letter from the Jews and he sent the letter back saying, you've got to stop all work. So after King Cyrus had said, go ahead and do this work, the imposter king, the one who usurped authority, that's like the devil, he sent out a message to stop the work because he didn't want the work to go ahead. There was a prophecy given to the Israelites back in, in Jerusalem by Haggai and a couple of others. Uh, it, it prophesied and sent ballot, uh, sent, sorry, not sent ballot, um, what's his name? Zerubbabel took the word of the prophecy and he kept on building. He went back to building and he started building again. And then they went and had a, another search in the, and the king had been killed and the new king that took his place uh, searched in the annals of, of the kingdom and discovered that this was uh, ordered by the king that the temple should be uh, established and he made a ruling that if anybody stopped the work this time that they should have a beam pulled out of their house and they should be impaled upon the beam outside their place so everybody left them alone and they got the temple rebuilt. So the very next book is the book of Nehemiah, and in the book of Nehemiah, we discovered that uh, Nehemiah asked the questions of some people who had just come back from Israel. They said, How's, how are the people going in Israel? You know, the, you know, Israel's gone back there, he's built the temple, how's it going? And they said to him, well, the gates have been burned and the walls are broken down, and they're in a great mess there in the, in the place. And Nehemiah took it upon himself to really feel and sense the depth of the, of the um, condition of the people at the time. And he went to fasting and prayer and, and, and he went to confession and he said, God, you know, you're right in the way you said things. You're you right that we were sent into, into Babylonia, into exile. You were right because we were sinful. And I confess all, of us, all, all the sins we have uh, committed and all the sins I have committed and all the sins my father has committed. What do you want us to do? And, and he got a nudge from the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem and help them to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem, which was quite a feat. Of course, when he came to the king and the king said, looked at him, Nehemiah was the cupbearer of the king and he was walking around with a sad face. It's not a good thing to walk around when you're cupbearer of the king to walk around with a sad face. And you are the one who's testing the wine before 
the king tests it. You have to eat the food before the king eats it because you know, you're the one who's meant to die if it's poisoned. So if you're walking around and you're looking like you're sad in the face, the king's going to immediately suspect that something's wrong. You're going to take a, a, a mouthful and going to die. What's wrong? Please tell me what's wrong. If you're happy, then I'm happy. If you're not happy, then something's going wrong in the place. And so he tells the king exactly what's on his heart and how he is so brokenhearted that the walls of Jerusalem are broken down and the gates are burned. The place is not secure. The people are not healthy and not secure where they are in Jerusalem. And the king tells him, well, take what you need and head over there and fix it up. But make sure you come back. And so Nehemiah, we read the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a, is a, it's a wonderful, interesting book about a man who has a vision from God to go and look at the situation, takes a tally what needs to pay, uh, be done, organizes the people, raises the capital and, and does the job. I think in 52 days he builds the re- or, or the people rebuild the walls and put the gates in place. Absolutely amazing story. You need to read that this week. It's on your thing to read this week. Read it. Find out all about it. I'm going to talk about a little bit about it today, but I'm not going to talk about it a lot. I'm just going to talk about the problems that they faced. So you shouldn't be surprised. You can say, are you surprised because when you try to do something for God and God has told you to do something, that you immediately face opposition? I mean, I would be surprised. I think, God, you told me to do this. You wanted me to do this and I go do this and now immediately people are against me. I would have thought that if you told me to do something, you'd look after all the people who are against me. I would have thought you'd look after the enemy. I'd look, I thought you'd make the heart smooth for me so I wouldn't have to go through all this difficult time, all this rough stuff. stuff. God shows us and teaches something about moving forward in him. Sometimes moving forward in him, even though he's told you to move forward, and even though you know you're fulfilling a prophetic word, even though you're heading out in the direction he wants you, sometimes moving forward is going to cause you great stress and pain because people just don't want you to move forward the way God wants you to move forward. We generally find that when you decide to reestablish your relationship with God and when you began to rebuild your relationship with the body of Christ, like you're getting into the, you know, a new group of people, we, we kind of think that we shouldn't have any opposition, but what we find out is there are people who are really desirous to destroy it for us. And those people or those personalities are demonic personalities. They were, they were very angry that somebody had come with the welfare of the Jews at heart. When Nehemiah arrived, they wanted to find out what was going on. And Nehemiah was tight-lipped. He wasn't saying anything. He was just, just riding around the walls on his mule at night time, looking at what was going on. He wasn't about to talk about it to anybody because he knew as soon as he said something, they'd all be up there to, to attack it. So he did a lot of planning quietly behind the scenes before, um, before he actually announced what he was going to do. And he got people on side before he made a public declaration about what he, was, what, what he was about. And the reason he did that is because the people who were there were working against anything coming out that was uh, going to be any good for the community of the Jews. So there are three questions that I want to ask, answer today. I want to ask and I want to answer them. Who's your enemy? And how do they oppose you? And how do we fight them? So I want to try and get through those three questions today. When I started writing this sermon, um, I realized that there, there is lots and lots of 
things that you could say and lots of directions you can go with this sermon, but I want to keep it as brief as I can so we can talk about those things. I think the first thing I want you to do is is look at this passage in Ephesians chapter 6. It's a well-known passage and it talks about the warfare that we have. But we need to be beware of misdirected blame. Sometimes we end up fighting all the wrong people. We end up fighting the wrong, the wrong battle. And it's because we are misdirected, because we don't have it clear in our heads of where, where the fight is. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 12 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the devil's schemes. Obviously, you're going to be in a battle, and yes, the devil's going to be the one that you're going to be fighting. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And I like that because it tells you straight out front, it says, You are not fighting people now what comes at you might come through a person but you are not fighting people there's something behind the people there's something behind the person that's generated and it's come from the dark side it's come from a spiritual world the bible says we are fighting against the rulers and against the authorities and against powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms I could go and talk to you for about three or four hours just about that last statement and talk about the, the hierarchy of demons and how they affect our lives, but that's not what we're talking about today. We're just going to recognize that it's not human beings. Now, one of the things that I, I think is important to understand is there that we, we are tempted when people hurt us and wound us or when people are around us and object to the fact that we are moving in a certain direction or are producing problems for our lives we tend to blame them for what is happening and that's something that happens very easily in our lives we look and we sit and we and 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 we look and 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 some hardship comes on our lives and we look and immediately we're looking for who to blame for the problem now that's what we're told not to do that's misdirected anger your anger is being directed at a person now rather than being directed at this print the principle behind it and when you direct your anger at a person you're wasting a whole lot of energy in the wrong place because you're not going to get any resolve there it's not about who it is the solution is, uh, is not about blaming individuals around you it's recognizing that those individuals may be being used but it's a spiritual force behind you and the spiritual force wants you to lose your focus on Jesus and wants you to begin to act inappropriately. And if you forget that and you look at the person and you fix your blame on a person, you're going to do a lot of battle here, but it's not going to be well and it's not going to work out well for you because you've misdirected the blame. The blame rests with the demonic force behind it, not with the person who's being used by the demonic force. It's with the devil. And the thing that you need to do is when you blame somebody... You project accountability to the other person. You can't fix the situation when you're blaming someone else. You can't even fix yourself because you think the other person's causing all the pain on the inside. But if you stop and say, I'm not going to blame, I reckon it's the devil, you can take responsibility for your own life and then you can take account for your own life and you can make sure you act appropriately and you act according to the will of God. Now, if you're blaming someone else, you've missed it already. You're already acting inappropriately. You're not to do that. And I think Jesus actually tells us in, in, the, um, in, the, in the Gospel of Matthew, he tells us not to get into the blaming issue. Let's have a look and see what it says there. Well, we'll go there 
After we've had a look at this one. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5 says, So we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. So this is mixed, misdirected activity. So we have misdirected blame, and then we have misdirected activity. Well, what does that mean? Well, when you start blaming a person and you start getting angry at a person, you start taking action against the person and say, well, I'm going to get that person out of my life. You think about it. It may feel good that you can find the blame. You're raising kids. Maybe they're teenage kids. And all, How many people know that teenage kids cause a lot of pain? I had three of them. They're all growing up now. When they were growing up and, and uh, they were challenging you know, my authority and challenging Jenny's authority and letting me know that they had their own individuality and they had their own thoughts, it was difficult in their house. It was difficult. It wasn't pleasant. Now, I may well have said at times, okay, well, I didn't say it to them, but I might have thought it. All right, I can get rid of you. I've got to just send you down the street, get rid of you out of my life. That would have been a misdirected activity to a degree, you know, because I can remove them from the house and I can say I'm at peace now. But I removed the problem, but I didn't remove the situation in my life because there will be somebody else come through the face, come into my life with their faces on it and it's the same thing there. Do I remove them as well? Do I just get everybody out of my face that is going to cause me pain? Is that the way I deal with pain? I just... Get everybody out of my face that is going to give me pain. I'll isolate myself in a little hole in the bottom of the, of the backyard and I'll sit there and I won't let anybody come here because everybody's going to cause me pain. Get them all out. Misdirected activity. I can't get rid of the problem by getting rid of you. If I, if I believed that, then I would arm the Christians and we would all march out to the Muslims and we'd go, pow, 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 pow. And the winner would be the ones with the biggest guns. And if the Christians won there, it would be great. And then up would rise the Hindus. And we'd have to kill all the Hindus. And then after you killed all the Hindus, you'd, you'd be saying, well, we got rid of the Muslims and we got rid of the Hindus. And then the Buddhists would come up. And we'd have to kill the Buddhists because your way of dealing with the problem is to kill them. And that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying get rid of them. He says, you do not war as the world wars. It's not like that. You can't. This is a different kind of battle. Don't get a misdirected blame and don't get a misdirected activity. The battle is not going to be something that you're going to wage war with like the world does. Kill them. That's what... It's not about there. Jesus says this about that sort of behaviour. And it's in Matthew chapter 5, verses 30, 38 to 48. But listen to this. He says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You know, you kill me, I'll kill you. It's essentially what he's saying there. If you kill somebody, we'll take your life. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. See, that's a really ugly statement, that one, right there. Jesus, why did you have to say that? Of course, we all really need to resist evil people, don't we? I mean, unless the righteous stand up and say what's right, the evil are abound, won't they? And of course, there's a place to stand up and shine a light. But when it comes to physical resisting evil men because we think that we have the notion to do that you've got to make some quantum leaps you've got to say i know that that person's the problem when jesus says it's not flesh and blood you're going to have to say it's flesh and blood you're going to have to label that person as being the problem and then you're going to have to kill that person or get rid of that person are you willing to say that that's the problem are you are you capable of actually seeing what the problem really is you will kill this person and the devil jumps out of this person jumps into that person comes at you again because it's not flesh and blood 
He says, don't resist the evil person. He says, get him a different way. And if he wants to sue, he says, oh, he says, if anybody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the left cheek as well. He says, oh, this is a different way. He says, if he's going to punch me, turn my head so he can punch me again. That's a different wrinkle. It's not what we think. Jesus is saying, you're fighting a different battle here. You're not waging war like the world does. You punch me, then I'll punch you back harder. You hit me, then I'll hit you back harder. No, 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 that may be the way it is in your home, and that may be what you do when you're at home, but when you're doing it in the kingdom of God, he says, if he punches you, stop there. Don't put anything in your hand. Turn your other cheek and say, if you like that, do the other side as well. That's different. That's a God-focused activity. He says, and if someone wants to sue you and take your shirt, give him your coat as well. He says, if someone forces you to go one mile and the, and the, and the uh, Roman soldiers used to come into the city in Jerusalem and they'd say, look, I'm carrying all this stuff and they'd look at you and you would be a Jew sitting at the side of the road and they'd say, pick up my bag. And they would force you to carry the bag for one mile. They could only do it for one mile. They couldn't force you to carry it two miles. The law said you could force somebody to carry your bag for a mile. Just imagine that. Pick up my bag. And you'd be looking because they had the milestones. And you'd start walking, you know. You'd make into a thousand paces. That's all I have to do. And then you'd put it down. And Jesus says, if they force you to take it one mile, take it a second mile. Always be in control of yourself. Always allow my spirit to be controlling you. Never let the thing that's coming at you be the thing that controls you. Always be controlled by the spirit of God within you. He says, that's the battle. He says, if that thing that's coming from outside of you is able to control you, you are out of control. The thing that stands outside you should not control you, Jesus says. Show me that you're not controlled by it. Go two miles. Turn the other cheek. So it has no effect on you. You have a misappropriated blame if you say that the person is causing the problem. And if then you, you try and fight back at the person, you've missed the whole point. Jesus says you show them that you are bigger than them, not by hitting them harder, but by going further than they can even take. And they stop and say, you know, I only one mile. I said, no, I'll take it a second mile for you. Because you're bigger on the inside than the one who's controlling you. The way Jesus does things is completely different to the way we think things should be done. Have you heard it said, uh, he says, uh, if one forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Love your enemies. You've heard it said, uh, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemies, which is the way of the world. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that they may be children of your Father in heaven. He, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He says, you pray for the ones who cause you. You pray for them. They're only a vessel being used by a demonic presence. Pray for them. Bless them that curse you. Bless and curse not. That's kind of hard because we like putting blame. We go through and he says, this is the way you show that you are perfect a son of God, by allowing the Holy Spirit to control you in the face of any kind of difficulty that comes at you. So he says, you don't wage war like the 
like the world wages war. The weapons that we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. He said, this is how we fight. This is the fight we are doing. So how do they oppose you? Well, they distract you. The demonic forces try and distract you and take your eyes off the Lord Jesus. And they do that by trying to feed you lies and truths. They cause you to act in an inappropriate way. And therefore you sin. And once you begin to act inappropriately and you do something like that and sin, they start to try and wrap chains around you, wrap foothold chains where they take a foothold in your life. You start getting resentful and then all of a sudden you get develop bitterness in your life and it's only because you didn't do what Jesus told you to do at the beginning. You let a foothold take place in your life. And it really doesn't matter what the negative, negative responsibility in, our, in your life, a foothold will come if any negative attitude is there, you know, that is not of God. It can be anger, it can be lust, it can be um, whatever it is, it can be there and it can present itself to you. If you give in to it and don't resist it and put it away, it'll establish a foothold. And once it's got a foothold, once the demon has a foothold in your life, it will try and make a stronghold of it to reinforce it there. Bring its mates and they're trying to make it so that you can't shake it off. Well, you have to deal with it quickly. So how does he attack? How do we face uh, the attack and what's the attack look like? Well, if you go right back to the beginning, you can see the attack in Eve's life. She was tempted in three ways. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, we see the tree was good for food. So it appealed to the flesh. Hunger and thirsting are attitudes of the flesh or desires of the flesh and when she looked at the tree she was obviously hungry and she saw it was good for food so it, there was a drawer or a pull towards the tree that she was told not to eat from because it looked that it was good for food probably the fruits hanging there looking very very yummy and uh, that looks good for, to eat i'd like everything she'd tasted beforehand tasted wonderful so why wouldn't that taste good i'd like to taste that it was pleasant to the eyes it actually looked good it looked really attractive. Oh, gee, that looks good, you know. Look at that lovely big thing there hanging there, ready to... I bet that's juicy. Mmm, I'd like that. It looks really great. And then the devil told her it will make you very wise. It will make you just like God because, you know, he knows that if you eat this fruit, you'll become wise. You'll know the difference between good and evil and, you know, you'd be... And it, it stimulated her pride to want to be like God. I said lies, he told lies and he deceived her. But she took it and she ate it and she gave it to her husband and so she experienced the result of having an attitude that was different to God and not agreeing with God, that pride. She experienced that. When we look at Jesus' life, we can see that his temptations were the same. It's like there's a pattern that's being shown us here. So when Jesus is driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit and it's time he's, he's fasted for 40 days and the devil comes to him, he says to him, look at the stones. He says, why don't you turn them to bread if you're the son of God? Appealing to the flesh again. It looks good for food. You can, you can actually, if you're God's son, you can change the stones into food and eat the food. Same idea, lust of the flesh. Jesus didn't respond to that. He wasn't happy and wasn't interested in actually going that way. And so 
the devil took him up to a very high top of the building and he says, you know, just think of who you are. You are, if you're the son of God, the scripture says that if you throw yourself down, his angels will pick you up because you're so precious to God. You're so important to God. Be proud of that, you know. Show us you can do that. Appealed to his pride. Come on now, you're the son of God. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. The angels will bear you up so you won't strike your foot against the stone. That's the scripture he used. You must be someone important to God. Pride. And of course, Jesus wasn't interested in going there. He wasn't going to do that. He said, I'm not going to be fooled by that. Don't tempt the Lord your God, he said. So he took him and he showed him everything around the world. Took him to a very high hill and showed him all the kingdoms. In a moment, he saw all the beauty of the kingdoms, the magnificent, wonderful kingdoms that were laid out around the world. All the nations. And all their glory laid out around them. And he said, all these are mine. He says, and I will give them to you if you will bow down and worship me. Look, see, isn't that splendid? You can have all that lust of the eyes. So the three things again coming up. Eve had it, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Jesus was assaulted. This is the way the devil comes at you. Lust of the flesh, pride of life, lust of the eyes. He's coming at you trying to have his way nehemiah he had three guys come and present themselves to him and i think this is really interesting because when i studied the names or the study the names of these guys we come up with the same thing send ballot that's his name it, it meant and this is the dreg meaning send ballot is the moon god give him life and it means a serpent that comes out of a prison cell or a crest of a rock so we're talking about send ballot his name really means a serpent that comes out of a hole in the ground or a prison cell. Like, we, he's the devil. We got to Tobiah, and Tobiah, he stands for the flesh because he's from a mixed marriage. He wants to have all the blessings that the Jews have got. He's got one Jewish parent, but he can't establish his other Jewish parent. He's, he's from an Ammonite race, which means he's of mixed breed, and he wants all the blessings, but he can't, he's not pure blood. And they weren't to intermarry with the people from the land. And so he is what we call the flesh. The flesh, it's there, but it, it, it can't be part of what God is doing. You have to put to deed, death the deeds of the flesh, the scripture says. So Tobiah talks to us of the flesh. And Geshem, he was an Arab. And, it, and his name, Geshem, means to rain down, violently rain down upon. And he was an Arab, and the word Arab it means mixed. And he stands for the world and the way it rains down upon the believer's life with so many mixed ideas and thoughts. It's all mixed up, crazily mixed up. And so there, with the names of those three men that came against Nehemiah and the building process, you still have the world, the flesh, and the devil. So it's like God is saying to us, look, there's a problem here. The problem is the, this is what you're going to face on a regular basis. You're going to face the world, which is kind of like the lust of the eyes. Everything that presents itself in the world is drawing you and attracting you. That's why media is a big thing. You know, you look at media. That's why those things are enticing to you. You look, you see, you'd be enticed by those things. Also, the perceptions of the world, that's like the eye too. It's the ideologies of the world are like the ideas of the world that are around there the world views that present themselves i like the idea of humanism it's kind of like a noble idea it gives tolerance to all people and it lets everybody have a say and it, and it accepts everybody for what they are whether they 
whatever. I know it dismisses the fundamentals of the truth of God's word, but it seems to be a whole lot more kind and tolerant. I like that. It's, it's nice. I think I sit well with that. And so this whole idea of a, a, a paradigm of thought or idea becomes attractive to people. People in church don't want to say the word of God says that and that's it. It's true. They say, well, well why does that have to be true? That's so hard line. Why don't you just take a more moderate view, a more tolerant view? Let's have a church that accepts everybody no matter what they believe rather than hold the word of God and say, this is the truth. This is what the word of God says. This is the truth. The flesh is always there. And the flesh is not something that is bad. It's just is. It's just your hunger and your thirst. And if it gets out of control and it starts to control you, that's when it gets, that's when it gets crazy. You, it's all right to have hunger and thirst, but when you drink too much, there's a problem. And when you eat too much, there's a problem. And it doesn't matter what the hunger is for, whether the hunger is for sex, if you have too much, it's a problem. If the hunger is for not, not um, for whatever it is you want to do, to killing or for gambling or for whatever your addiction is, that's an over-focused hunger. You should be in control of those things. You should be reining those things in. And when those things take control of your life and you are no longer in control of your body, but your body is in control of you, you have a major problem in your hands. You're meant to be running your body, not your body running you. You should be able to say to your body, you know, you're not eating today, you're going to have a fast. And some of you might shake and say, I get all weak in my knees and shake a bit. But you should be able to fast like that. If God tells you to fast, you should be able to say, okay, I can fast for a meal. I can do that. And God will give you the strength of it. You should be able to say with comfortableness, no to yourself. No matter what you're hungry for. You should be able to say no to yourself. And of course, the devil comes and he's always going to be there in our lives. This is what's living in a fallen world. He's going to be talking to us about how we can be better than God because we know better than God and you can have a different view than God. You see, pride is really not agreeing with God. Pride is standing up and saying, I think that I have a different way. I think I have a different mind and I'll think I'll do differently. And that's pride. And that's around us all the time. And we're tempted by those three areas, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. John tells us the same as well. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 7, he says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So he's telling us, this is what's going to come at you. So this week, you're going to know that the devil's going to come at you and the, and the spiritual forces of wickedness are going to use these three things to try and take you out. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's what's going to happen. You're going to have a battle on your hand. The world is full of battles. Peter says to us in Acts chapter 2, verse 40, he says, and with many words he talked to the people there at that time and he says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. That's essentially what we've got to try and do. In our, if it was corrupt back then, it's corrupt now. We have to save ourselves from a corrupt generation. A generation he's talking there is about a whole multitude of men living at the same time. 
The people who are living in this world today are corrupt. It's, it's, a, it's a bad world we live in. It's not a great world. It's not a wonderful world. We're not talking about the created order here. We're talking about society in general. We're talking about godless society. It's a bad world we live in, and, and, and we've got to save ourselves from this terrible state. The Bible tells us very clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They can't see it. An unbeliever, you can start saying, okay, I believe in Jesus, and immediately they look at you and they think, you are just somewhere else. You are a weirdo. If you say it to people when you're at school, they look at you and they say, oh, you're one of those fundamental people, and they, they have a, an attitude towards you straight away. You, they've got you boxed up somewhere in something. You say it to your neighbor and they look at you and they keep away from the fence so you don't talk to them anymore about it. You say it to people where you work, they, they sort of look at you and say, you know, we, we don't talk about religion or politics here. You know, they try and keep themselves away because they are blind. They don't want to see it. They want to know about it. And the devil keeps them blind because if he can keep them blind, they're going to go to hell. And that's what he wants. Now, society is all about trying to lure you to the dark side and opposing you from trying to shine the light into them. So the, the opposition is there. It's right there wanting to... But how do you fight? Well, the first thing is you can't be intimidated and be ashamed about Jesus. I think on, on, on Friday night when we looked at some of the evidences for, the, for Jesus, we looked at the prophecies of Jesus and the incredible weight of evidence that's there in terms of the prophecies of Jesus. It gives you confidence. When you start looking at the claims of Jesus and some of the things he did in the word of God and his claims of resurrection and the fact he was resurrected from the dead and the proofs for that are, very, are quite astounding and, and, and that gives you some sense of confidence that Jesus is really who he said he was. And when you add that together with all the other evidence that's around and you look at it, you need not be ashamed or intimidated at the fact that you believe in Jesus. The converse should really have you can explain to somebody else, you know, why don't you believe in Jesus? You really need to give me a reason why you don't believe in Jesus. I've got some very good evidence for why I believe in Jesus. I've experienced something and I know it's true. So can you explain to me why you don't? And I think that the, the owners of proof should be on their foot to prove why they shouldn't believe in Jesus rather on your proof for, for believing in him. But we are intimidated and we may just feel like we're less than if we start talking about it. And we see it in the media. As soon as, soon as somebody starts standing up, they, oh, everybody starts yelling and starts screaming and it's, oh, you hate, you're a hateful person if you're a believer. You know, So many people die just because of God and wars and stuff like that. And they failed to remember all the wars that have taken place in the last century that killed more like 120 million people in China and in Russia just under secular governments. Oh, fail that, to miss that completely. They missed it completely. They don't see that. They just think back and they think, you know, wars with God and then kill people and that's what they say. And then they intimidate you if you believe that Jesus can give somebody life and that he can change your life. They scoff at you and they mock at you. So you feel ashamed. And you try and keep it quiet. You know, you, you know that's happening when you're standing with somebody who's not a believer and you're about to talk to them and God prompt something in your head like a couple of words to raise the question about jesus or to raise the question about god and you do a come up you think it's right there the thought is right there in your head and you do a kind of little mental shift and you sort of bury that thought and you head in another direction 
How many people have done that? Put your hand up. Be honest if you've done that. That's right. It's like, what happens at that point? You get an idea, and I think that the Jesus, Jesus has just given you some words to say, but you get fearful of producing those out of your mouth because you think the consequence may be damaging to the relationship, number one. It may cause you some rejection, number two. You might think, uh, you know, I can't defend it. I don't have enough things to say about it. And so you back away from it. Now listen, there's a powerful scripture in Mark chapter 8, verse 38 that I think you need to reflect upon. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, Jesus says, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. So he's saying, you can't afford to be ashamed of me. I'm watching what you're doing. He says, I don't, you, you, you need to build up your facts and build up the reasons why you believe so, and build up your relationship with me so you have a sense of boldness in your relationship with me and walk out in boldness because you're not ashamed. He says, you need to be doing that rather than feeling like you're intimidated and ashamed of mentioning the fact that you believe in God. I know it's hard and I know it's going to be difficult for some of you to, to, in your family situations, make a bold declaration like, look, I follow Jesus, you know? And the people around you are going to say, well, we don't and don't ram it down our throats. It doesn't matter. It's okay. You can be confident and just follow the lead of the Spirit. If the Holy Spirit puts words in your mind, He's giving you the testimony of Jesus then be confident and speak those words out and believe that when you speak those out, even if they reject you because of them, God's going to take them and do some work later on in their lives. You've just got to believe that. Otherwise, you'll be shut up and you'll be intimidated, you'll be put in the corner and you dare not speak because they'll say bad things about you. You don't want to live there. If you've got a light, you put it on top of a bushel. You don't put it under the bushel. Paul said this about it, and you should learn this verse. For I am not ashamed. Everybody say, I'm not ashamed. I want you to say it with gusto now. I am not ashamed. Yeah, that's good, Noel. Say it again, all together. I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed. That's good. It's a nice affirmation. I am not ashamed of what? I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everybody. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everybody. Why would I be ashamed of that? Everybody's going to end up facing God. Some are going to go to eternal damnation and some are going to go to life. I'm interfacing with people who are going to go to eternal damnation every day and I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it brings salvation to them if they hear it. Why would I be ashamed? I say, I don't want to talk to you about this because if I talk to you about this, you might hate me. But then you'll hate me, really hate me at the end because you'll say, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? Because I would have had the words to say to you and I would have said something, but I was scared that you might think that I was silly or dumb or that I believed in Jesus and that's not very modern. That's sort of like pre-modern, you know, you are not with it, you know. And I was sort of scared to actually say, you know, I'm a Christian and I believe that God changes lives because he changed my life. I just won't say anything. No, we should wake up in the morning and we should say, look in the mirror, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's the power of God unto salvation. We should tell ourselves that before we go out the door. And then when we get to the first person we meet, we should say, what do you want to say, Lord Jesus, to this person? And if they hate you for the rest of your days, let it be. At least you said it. At least you're not ashamed of something that you believe. And you have a right to believe it. And if you look at it, listen to it this way. This is the world's thinking. If you believe in Jesus, that's craziness. 
If you believe in uh, Hinduism, that's craziness, they say. We believe that we came from a primordial ooze out of the ground. We've got no proof of it. That's what we believe. What? That's crazy. I mean, it's fine. There is no God. There is no truth. Everything is subjective. Well, that's crazy. Well, we think it's crazy too. Well, if you're crazy and I'm crazy, then we're all crazy. It doesn't matter what you believe. Well, then if it doesn't matter what I believe, let me tell you about my craziness. I love Jesus. Jesus loves you. And he wants to speak to you. Well, that's crazy. I don't believe in that. Well, that doesn't matter. Our arguments are the same weight because they mean nothing if you're right. But if they mean something because I'm right, you're hearing the way of life. And I want to be doing that. It doesn't matter. If, if, if evolution is correct, that we all came from nothing, there is no God. Your argument is just as valid as the person who says it's all evolutionary. There's just arguments of, all the argument is, is a, your neural pathway getting excited at the end of some idea and your consciousness coming up with an idea and you're spewing the idea out and they're having another idea. What's the weight of the idea? It's all meaningless. It's all nothingness because it has no origin in God. There is no God. It doesn't matter. So why would you be ashamed? The atheist says, oh, oh, oh God, boo-hoo, boo-hoo-hoo. Oh, that's okay. Doesn't matter. But if I'm right, then you're wrong. It matters very much. And you'll have eternity to reflect on that. I don't believe in consciousness. It doesn't, taste, doesn't change anything. I don't believe in hell. It doesn't change the fact that there is a hell. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't even believe he existed. doesn't change the fact that he did exist and he died and he rose again from the dead. doesn't change anything. That's subjective fact. That's all out there. Well, I don't believe it. doesn't matter. You believe that you try to keep your eyes open when you cross the road because the train will, tra- train will hit you if you, or, the, or the truck will hit you and it will kill you. You believe that objective fact. You're a living contradiction then, aren't you? Because there are some objective facts you believe and others that you refuse. What makes one right and the other one wrong? Well, that's the question they need to discuss. Not something that you have to say. Why is gravity right and you won't jump off a building because gravity is right and yet all the proofs about Jesus and his resurrection wrong? Resurrection wrong. That's their question they have to answer, not yours. Because the facts sit there looking at them and they have to come up. So I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Learn to say that to yourself. And so Ephesians tells us that we are strong in the Lord, to be strong in the Lord and his mighty power, that we're to put on the full armor of God to stand against the devil's schemes. And the armor starts with the belt of truth. So what we're doing in terms of apologetics is establishing the belt of truth for us. It pulls us in. It's like if we start to study the truth that's there, the objective truths that are presented in the Word of God and the presented through archaeology and are presented around us, and we look at the proofs that are there, the evidence of them, we are, we are overcome with the weight of evidence that establishes the truth. That's like putting the belt on. Well, if you never ask the question and never find out what the truth is, you never put the belt on. Well, the belt was very important because they pulled up their skirt between their legs, and then they put a belt around it, and that meant they can get around fast in the battle. The belt actually kept it all together so that they could fight well. If you left the belt of truth off, you're going to get tripped up. You're going to go into battle, and you're going to take a step, and you're going to be tripped up on something. So that's why you get the truth. The truth actually keeps it all together so you can 
keep your head together and you can fight well so you're not tripped up. You take it and you put it all on. The armor is there. You, 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 you put your, your, your breastplate on. The righteousness that he gives you. That you know you're broken and now he's given you this righteousness, new righteousness. And you take the, your feet and you shod them with the readiness of the gospel of peace. You, you prepare yourself to preach the gospel to other people. You take the shield of faith, which is the belief and the confidence that comes from knowing the truth. It absorbs all the fiery attack that comes at you. I know the truth. It doesn't matter what you say to me. I'm not worried about what you say to me. It's not going to hurt me what you say to me because I've got the truth here on my shield. And it's going to swamp up all of those negative emotions. I'm not going to get worried about what you think. I expected that of you, but I'm I'm not worried about that. The shield stops it because you believe the truth. And you take the sword of the Spirit, which is the truth. And you use the truth on the enemy. And you put the helmet of salvation on, which is the mind of Christ, which is the truth. And it keeps you safe. It's all the truth. You need to focus in on the truth. The more you got of the truth, the bolder you become. We know that it was God's desire for you to be very bold in the truth because he sent the spirit of truth to reside within you, to empower you to speak the truth, to give you gifts, to give you character so that you would never quit. The spirit of truth constantly there with you. So this attack is a spiritual attack. And that's why it says in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, it says, My dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. He says, you have to test everything. You have to weigh everything against what? The truth. You have to take the word of God and you have to say, this is what the truth is. This is the truth here. It's in the word of God. I read the Bible every day. I look at it and then I listen to what's coming at me and I put it through the filter of the word of God. I say, what's coming at me now? Is it according to the word of God? No, it's not. Well, then it's rubbish then. I can just reject it. I filter it. I test it with the word of God. Test it with the truth. He says, this is how we can recognize the spirit of God Every spirit who acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that means agrees with the word of God. And every spirit that does not acknowledge uh, Jesus is not of God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard is coming and even is already in the world. So it was already in the world then, and it still is in the world now. The spirit of Antichrist is still there. And you get it all the time. You get it in the universities. You get it in the newspaper. You get it in the media. You get Antichrist coming at you continuously. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 to 6, listen to what it says. You, dear children, and you ought to learn this one because this is a lovely verse. You, dear children, are of God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. That ought to give you confidence. You have God in you that's greater than the world has. It says they are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world. This is this wicked and evil generation. It speaks... But you are not of this world. You are of God and you have overcome this world. They speak from the viewpoint of the world. Where are you speaking from? You're speaking from God's point of view. You're talking out the mind of Christ. You're speaking God's truth to the situation and the circumstances around you. And the world listens to them, but it won't listen to you. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us and whoever does not, uh, whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. That's the way it is. 
See, we fight with his truth. This is the verse we had up there from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, on, on the contrary, he says, we don't fight with the weapons of, the, of this word, war, the world that, like, like the, the people do. We don't get guns and shoot and blow people up. We don't do that, he says. He said, what we do is we deal with ourselves. We look at ourselves and we deal with ourselves. He says, on the contrary, we have divine power to demolish strongholds. Okay, what are the strongholds? We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So we know the only way that the devil can actually get to you is get to your eyes and present something into your head and try and twist your head. So the battle is for your mind. The battle is to try and deceive you, to try and take the truth out of your mind. He'll do that through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and through the pride of life. He'll come along and he'll put something in front of you that looks really good, and he'll tell you quietly in your mind, you know, you want to try that. That looks really good. I know God says you shouldn't do it, but you know, there's a lot of enjoyment right there. Just right there, there's a lot of enjoyment. You ought to go for that one. So he'll try and deceive you. He'll try and get you convinced in your mind that going against God is the way to do it, just like he did with Eve and just like he did with Jesus. He'll try to get you, and you have to take that word that's coming at you through your eye gate or through your ear gate or whatever it's has presenting itself to you. You have to take that and you have to say, is this according to the counsel of God? Is this according to the word of God? And, you, and you're not alone in this. You don't have to try and work this out by yourself. You can say, Holy Spirit, you are the spirit of truth. Can you tell me if this is true or not? Holy Spirit, I need your wisdom here. And if you're in doubt, chuck it out. Because the doubt about it is probably the Holy Spirit saying, uh-uh, don't touch it. You'll find out later, if you can't put your finger on exactly what it is that's making it wrong, but you just feel uncomfortable about it, take it from the Holy Spirit. That uncomfortable feeling is telling you to kick it out. Don't sit there and say, well, I don't know, I asked for a word and I haven't got a scripture. Well, I just feel it's a bit uncomfortable, but I'm going ahead, I'm going to do it anyway. You'll find out later that that which is not a faith is sin. And if you go against your conscience and your conscience is telling you you shouldn't be doing that, you know you're going against what God is saying. You don't have to know the detail. If the spirit of truth is inside of you, he'll tell you on the inside, even if you don't know why, but you will know it's wrong. So there's no doubt, never any doubt, whatever situation you find, well, should I have this boyfriend or not this boyfriend? Well, he's not a Christian. Oh, I just, he's such a nice, he's such a good boy. I, 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 just, I just want to have this boyfriend. And what does the Bible say? I don't know. I'm just not looking at the Bible. I'm ignorant to what the Bible. How do you feel inside? Just a little uneasy. That's enough. I could take you to verses and I could show you verses. Says, don't go there. But you don't want to go there and you haven't learned that. But the Holy Spirit's still faithful. He's sitting inside of you and saying, you ought not do this. He's faithful. He's talking to you. When we reject the Holy Spirit and when we, we push him away and don't listen to him, that's when we are succumbing to the arguments. We're, we're accepting those arguments, accepting those pretenses, and we set them up against God's knowledge and we didn't justify ourselves. I'm not being wrong. Everybody does this. And we hear all that garbage from people who have slipped away from the truth. Why? Because they thought their way was better than they got succumbed by the, the devil who came and presented himself to them and, and lured them into another station, another station, another position. Rather than looking at it and saying, you know what, I just want to have a good conscience before God. God, Tim, Paul tells Timothy to have to maintain a good conscience. All I want is to walk with a good conscience. You know, that's just a Jiminy Cricket idea. Let your conscience be your guide. That's just right there. Right there, you should listen to that. 
Because if your conscience is cleansed from dead works to serve a living God, it's going to give you the right guidance. Right there. You don't need to know scripture and verse. You just need to know what a good conscience feels like and what a bad conscience feels like. And a child knows that. A child or two knows that. Knows the difference between what are you doing? Is it right or wrong? They look down and they look at even the dog understands that to a degree. Look at it. Dog puts its head back. Look, you don't need to be real bright, I'm saying to you, to get that one. You just need to be willing to live with a good conscience. Some of you don't want to do that. You'd rather straddle that fence and think you're getting along fine through life. There's a day coming when the fence post will fall and you'll find yourself in extreme pain. This is what he says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and 19. He says, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. So he's telling you it's a, the process of thought. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to, everybody say it, the hardening of their hearts. Well, what that basically means is you heard your conscience speak to you and you said, you know what? I'll do what I want to do. So there's the problem right there. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life come present themselves to you and it looks all, almost enticing and then you decide not to do what the Holy Spirit is telling you to do. You decide to harden your hearts and do what you shouldn't do. They lose all sensitivity. They have given themselves over to sensuality so they indulge in every kind of impurity and that's the slip. As soon as you start that, you say, oh, I'll just that you do that. And then the devil says, now I got you, now I got you. And the thing that you gave him a foothold to do, he then turns into a stronghold. It might be, I'll just tell what I think, I'll just express my anger at that person because you missed it. You know, you, you don't recognize the spirit behind it and you had a shot at the person. All of a sudden, that anger now becomes an attitude of judgment and bitterness towards people who stand in front of you. You got it. You've been caught by bitterness. You've been snared. All you had to do was forgive and all you had to do is bless them that persecute you. All you had to do is refuse to make a judgment and leave it in God's hands. But you chose to be the one that was going to point the finger and bring blame. And when you chose to do that, he wrapped the cord around you and tightened it up. And then every other person you came by, he did the same thing. And now you've got a stronghold. You sit there in your room and you're angry about life and you're bitter about life. Why? Because you did not do what he told you to do. Bless them that persecute you. Bless and curse not. You let him rough you up. You gave him a foothold and he made a stronghold out of it. That's the hardening of the heart. Well, this is what he says, Paul says. This is not what you've learned the way it should be in life, he says. When you heard about Christ, you were taught in for him to, in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way to put off your old self, which is being corrupted in deceitful desires. He says, you're not meant to be listening to yourself and your desires. He says, you are to be made new in the attitudes of your mind. So he said, you know, you've got to say to God, I don't know what my, my head's saying, but I, you better tell me what I ought to be saying. So you're taking this and you're placing it here. You're changing the way you think. Once upon a time, if you made me angry, I'd punch you. Now if you make me angry, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to turn the other cheek and say, you want to punch me? That's a change of thinking. 
change of reaction. And you're to put on the new self, which is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And it says, and therefore, each one of you should put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we all are members of one body. In your anger, do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your own. He's saying, deal quickly with this negative emotion, and do not give the devil a foothold. You know, if the father is the father of lies, if the devil is the father of lies, and he's going to lie, and he comes to you, and you do anything that he tells you to do, that's a foothold. So whatever it is, whatever the motion is that comes at you, you just want to react, don't do it. Stop yourself immediately. Don't do it. Play dead. Don't give the members of your body to the flesh to fulfill that thing because it never helped you before and it won't help you again. So just don't play dead. Die to it. You can't make you pick up a bottle, can it? If you decide you're not going to drink again, you're not going to drink alcohol again. Till the devil can't put it in your hand and make it go to your mouth, can you? I can step, stack beer bottles all around you and they can all be filled and I can every one of them and the, sw- the smell can go towards you. I can throw the fans on it. But if you ch- choose not to, to lift your hands to drink one, will you drink again? You actually have to choose to pick it up. So he can say, oh, I'm not going to smoke again. And you did, you did, did that. Yeah. And you, how many years haven't you smoked? Three years at the end of May, not smoke. Oh, we gave you the applause on the first year, didn't we? And then, then everybody stopped applauding you because they forgot that you used to smoke. Is the battle still the same? Doesn't get any easier. But you know, but you know what? He hasn't smoked because he hasn't chosen to put one in his fingers, put it to his mouth and light it. You can, a cigarette won't jump up into his mouth and then self-ignite itself and, and push itself down to his lungs. It just doesn't happen. He has to do something about it. If in your anger you choose not to sin and you deal to do with it immediately, it will go away. If you don't respond, it will go away. If you, if you treat the thing that's coming at you immediately and don't respond to it and don't act, it will go away. It can't, it can't do anything else. But if you, leave, if you sleep on it and if you keep chewing it over and you keep playing with it, you go back to, well, I'm going to start again today to have no cigarettes. I blew it yesterday. I found a packet full. Have you found a packet full of cigarettes since you've stopped? Oh, oh and isn't, isn't that interesting? You're walking along and then on the ground, a packet of full cigarettes. How interesting is that? Just happened to be there. Well, what do you do? God provides. No one will know if you have one. <laughs> so here's the solution. James 4 tells it, and I'm going to go through it very quickly. Submit yourself to God. That means don't think that you know better than God. Just submit to God. Whatever you say, God, that's what I'll do. Resist the devil. Resist. That doesn't mean walk together with him and, 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 and talk with him and see how far you can get without sinning. Resist the devil means you get an idea that is wrong, we'll stop it straight away. Resist it. Resist it straight away. Stand up in opposition. Resist it. Draw near to God and the promises he'll draw near you. Um, I like that because it actually says the initiative, we know that he's already drawing you because you wouldn't be thinking about it if he hadn't drawn you. But he says, you, I want you to draw near to me and then I'll draw near to you. So he said, come here. 
Well, you won't come unless he's already drawn you. So he's already drawn you beforehand, but he's saying, let me see some initiative on your part. You have to get up and walk toward me now. Come to daddy. If you don't get up and start moving towards God, you might have a thought that goes through your head like this. I've got some time. I should read the word. Oh, you know what? I might listen to my iPod instead and listen to some music and dance around. Once you get that little word, you want to move towards him. Okay, I'm moving towards you. And he says, you move toward him, he will move toward you. He says, wash your hands. It's usually what happens when you get moving towards God. He says, I don't like this in your life. You've got to clean that up in your life. He tells you to wash your hands, purify your heart, you're double-minded. The purification of the heart means you've got two ways of thinking about stuff. He says, I don't want you to have two ways. I don't want you to have this is the way that you live when you're not with me and this is the way that you live when you're with me. And this is the walk that you walk. You know, when you're at church, you, you put on this one. And when you're away from me at school, you put on this one. This is, I don't want you to do that, he says. I want you to have one mind, one heart. He says, stop this double-mindedness. Have one direction in your life. That may mean you're going to grieve and mourn. I like that because it's so obvious, isn't it? I mean, if you stop following the world, you're going to get sad immediately. Because following the world is pleasurable. Sin is pleasurable for a season. It feels good. If anybody tells you that sin doesn't feel good, they are lying to you. Sin is most desirable when you're a sinner. In fact, you don't get enough of it when you're a sinner. And there's a diminishing response that happens when you're sinning. You can sin today and it feels fantastic. And tomorrow the same amount of sin doesn't feel as good. So you've got to sin a little bit more. To get the same hit. It's what happens behind pornography. It's what happens behind drug taking. It's what ha- behind everything that's a vice that's addictive. Whatever you started with isn't the thing that's going to keep you there. You've got to keep on upping the ante if you want to keep on getting the buzzers. So if anybody tells you that sin is not pleasurable, no, the consequence of sin is not pleasurable. It feels horrible to deal with it. So if you are dealing with sin, yes, you're going to grieve, mourn, and wail. I don't want I want it. I want it. I want it sin. I don't feel like saying no to myself. Everybody else is having fun. And I'm sitting here, I'm not having fun. No, read the word. I don't want to read the word because I don't like reading. I never have. It's not fun. Well listen to it on the on the iPod and read it while you listen to it. Well, I could do that, but it's not. I don't want to do that. I'd rather watch the footy. I'd rather watch the Origin match than go to apologetic study on Friday night. <laughs> and then the Holy Spirit says, you go to the Origin match and I'll never talk to you again. Oh, you mean I'm going to miss it? I can at least save the Origin match on my... and watch it later. Friends, I want to tell you, you, if you're going to deal with sin, you're going to mourn, grieve, and wail. And the more you mourn, the more you grieve, mourn, and wail. Did I do a spinnerism, mourn, grieve, and wail? (laughs) The more you deal with sin, the harder it's going to get. It doesn't get any easier. Three years, six years, you'll still be struggling with the uh, smell of cigarettes. But it's his conviction that God is in him controlling him that says no to sin. And he will humble himself in the sight of God and he will say, Jesus, I can't do anything like this without you. If you're not in me, I'd blow it straight away. Jesus, just help me walk this way. 
And if you walk that way, you know, friends, that you will be all right. Although you even have opposition and it comes at you, you know that you will be fine because Jesus has committed that he will finish the work that he's begun in you if you walk with him. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Let's stand. And Father, we know that your word is true and that every man is a liar. Father, we know that it's difficult, Lord, to say no to sin and yes to righteousness because we somehow find it easier to sin. Lord, we ask that you help us to change that perspective, that it would be easier to say yes to you and no to sin than yes to sin and no to you. We ask that you'd help us and strengthen us to fight the good fight of faith, Lord Jesus, that within our lives we would grow stronger every day and that you'd help us, Lord Jesus, to walk victorious for you. We ask this in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.